Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Chapter uh, 3. I'm going to ask our brother D to read the passage this morning. And as, as last week, uh, we have a longer passage this morning, so please follow along. It'll help. If you put your hand up, by the way, uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you stick your hand up, we'll make sure you get one. We've got ushers in the back that will bring you a Bible. And it'll just help you uh, to, pay, uh, to follow along if you're actually reading it in a, in a copy of the Scriptures. So Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And Dee is going to read through chapter 4, verse 4. Good morning, family. How y'all doing? Jeremiah chapter 1, I mean, excuse me, 3, beginning at verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, If a man divorces his wife and goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Will not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and would return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see... Where have you not been ravished? By the wayside you have set awaiting lovers, like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she had done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore, because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet all this her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on, your, look at, look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your, your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among, foreign, un, among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed the voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come of, to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from, come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, heritage most beautiful of all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me, surely, as a treacherous wife leads her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons, because they have perverted their way. 
They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless one. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Chapter 4. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nations shall be blessed themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning on this topic. It's not too late. Let's pray and ask for God's help with the reading of his word, the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to just come into this text. What a gift it is. We ask that as we do so, that you will make it come alive for us, that your Holy Spirit will indeed move in our hearts, and uh, that we will see your truth lead us to yourself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Is it too late? A wife had committed adultery, found herself in the arms of another man, was getting high almost every day for three years, divorced her husband. Is it too late? It's not too late. That's the story of our sister, Maria, member of this church, married to Charles in a beautiful marriage. It's not too late. An old man has kids that won't speak to him. He was abusive. He was angry. He was lust-filled. Made mistake after mistake after mistake. Found himself pushing 80 years old. Is it too late? It's not too late. That's the story of my neighbor who was converted just a couple years ago at about 80 years old. A businessman. He's got everything. He's got two houses. He's got kids. He's got a wife. Works for a government agency. After a lifelong struggle with pornography, addiction, almost on a regular basis uh, to pornography, he finds himself on a business trip. On that business trip, for the first time, he cheats on his wife with some prostitutes. That leads to drugs. First taste of crack. He's now on the streets of Baltimore for week, weeks on end. Spends everything that he has on, on uh, his newfound drug addiction. Loses his family. Loses his kids. Loses his house. Loses everything he has. Is it too late? No. That's the story of a good friend of mine who, by God's grace, currently works for an organization. He's the figurehead of this major organization that helps hundreds of men every year with addiction. A young man, uh, while he grew up in church, 
didn't have a father around. He had no male figure to look up to, no role model, was lost. Shortly after he began college, he quit as he began to uh, drink a lot, as he began to experiment with drugs, as he thought he could make some money in the drug business. Now pushing his late 20s, after years wasted, he finds himself locked up, facing a felony with possession. Is it too late? No. That's the story of my dad, who came to Christ, turned his life around, and made more of a spiritual impact on me than probably anybody else. It's not too late. And by the way, Joel chapter 2, verse 25 says, I will restore the years the locusts have destroyed. Meaning, not only is it uh, not too late to receive forgiveness, but God will even restore the years that you lost. It's amazing. Like my neighbor, he know, he has, he's been a Christian for just a couple years, recently converted, and has now more biblical knowledge than some people I know who have been a Christian their entire life. Years that have been wasted, are restored. Or my father, able to build a business for himself and lead a godly example and, and, uh, and send out four children into the service of the Lord in various ways. Years that have been restored. It's not too late. I want this message to be an encouragement for you. It's not too late. For those of you that think it's too late, everybody else answer them. It's not too late. Well, let's get into the Word, shall we? Last week I ended my sermon with a reference to Hosea. The story of Hosea and Gomer. And Hosea came before Jeremiah, and in many ways Hosea frames the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah uses Hosea in his own writing. So, for instance, verse 22 in this passage in chapter 4, verse 3 are almost literal uh, 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 quotations from, quotes from Hosea. You could, you could summarize the book of Hosea in this phrase, what's impossible for man is possible for God. Meaning the story of Hosea begins with his wife being sold as a slave. In the ancient world for ancient Israel, reconciliation of that marriage would have been impossible. Like, it doesn't strike us today as hard as it would have struck them then. It would have been impossible. But Hosea says what's impossible for man is possible for God. And that, I think, is also the point of Jeremiah. So, for instance, look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Here we, we begin with this rhetorical question. If a man divorces his wife, she goes from him, becomes another man's, another man's wife. Will he return to her? Now, this doesn't hit us with force like it would have hit them then. Going on, he turns it around and he says, you play the whore with all these different kinds of lovers. And would you return to me? Meaning like after you've done all of this, you think you're going to come back. Now, this would have hit them with great force. Why? Because according to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, according to the law, a man could not remarry his wife after she had married another man, according to the Old Testament law. Meaning, the, 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 the situation he's describing here would have been dire, and it would have shown the great problem that Israel is facing. Reconciliation with God is impossible according to our standards. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. And this is a chapter calling for reconciliation which begins with 
repentance. Turning back to God. Look at verse 11 with me. Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. What are we getting at there? Well, we've got to remember that we're dealing with uh, the, this, this issue of uh, the, the north and the south. So think, think of civil war. The kingdom has been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called what, Bible scholars? Israel, good. And the southern kingdom is called Judah. This can be confusing because sometimes we, we often refer to the whole as Israel. But for the sake of this text, Israel is in the north, Judah is in the south. Now, both Israel and Judah had been placing their hope in their external signs, meaning the sign of circumcision. You guys know what circumcision is? I don't have to describe it. For them, it was more than just simply a medical practice. It was a spiritual practice. It was the external physical marking that God has set them apart for his service and to be in his family. Now, because they're circumcised, Israel as a whole is placing their hope in their circumcision. Well, we're part of God's family. See, we're circumcised. Or maybe the fact that we have the Ark of the Covenant. All of these physical signs that we're part of God's family. The problem is, and I think he does a good job painting this picture, is that reconciliation is impossible according to what you can do. There is no amount of circumcision, to put it in a strange way, that you could do which would cause a reconciliation of this marriage. There is nothing you can do. So what is your hope? Here is your hope, is that God can do something you can't do. That God can actually reconcile his people to himself, and he does it through repentance. Let me walk you through this text a little bit. How does he do it? How does he, how does he bring about reconciliation? Well, first, God makes it possible through inviting repentance from the people. Now first he says, look at your sister's fate. And now he's talking to Judah. Why is he talking to Judah in the southern kingdom? Well, it's because Israel in the north is gone. They have rebelled against God. They had their warning. That's who Hosea was talking to. And Assyria has come in and they are obliterated. They're destroyed. Uh, the north is just simply a province now of Assyria. And so Jeremiah is focusing his attention on the south in Judah, and he says, look at your sister's fate. Look at what has happened. So the, here in verse 6 through 11, he reminds them what they saw. For instance, in verse 8, you saw it. The treacherous sister, dude, Judah, you guys saw what happened, but you did not fear. You saw the end of, 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 of Israel's rebellion. You saw Assyria come in. You heard the cries. You heard the stories. Maybe some brothers and family members were up there and they're slaughtered now, taken into captivity possibly. Yet you're doing the same thing. I mean, just to give you an example of this, I remember Carday once, he told me about uh, this little Melvin. Uh, if you know little Melvin, anything about him, he was a major drug dealer in Baltimore during the 70s and 80s especially, going all the way back to the 60s, he was sort of a kingpin. And I remember Carday told me once, little, Mel little Melvin, as an older man, spoke with some neighborhood youth and basically said, you're going to get caught. You can't sell drugs. That was his message, real moral message. You're going to get caught. And Cardio was telling me that the youth were like, what a fool. He got caught. We're not going to get caught. We're not going to do it in the way he did it. He was a fool because he got caught by the police. Hey, how many of them are in jail? Have been caught? A couple of them? Huh? This is, this, is a, this is what's happening with, with Israel. You saw what happened here. You saw that end. And you're doing the same thing thinking it's going to turn out different for you. You see, you can look at the record. You can see all the young men who have died in this city. And you think you can be out here on these streets, running the streets, 
and not end up dead or in jail. This is what's happening here. You, you saw how someone with a porn addiction, say, regular porn use, moved from porn to perversion to adultery. You saw it. They ruined their life, yet you think you can get away with just a little bit. What a fool. You saw how your parents rebelled against God. You saw some of the mistakes your parents made. They were grievous. And it cost them, and you're making the same mistakes. You saw how your friend was given over to sin and they ended up falling away from the faith and you think that you can delight in the same sin and remain a committed believer. Look at the comparison he makes. As we think of Judah and as we think of Israel, verse 11, he says, faithless Israel the ones up north, remember? The ones who are gone. They have shown themselves more righteous than you. Now, he's not actually saying they're righteous. This is like saying, hey, compared to you, Hitler's righteous. <laughs> All right? But that's kind of what he's saying. Meaning, you saw the end. You saw something that they didn't have a chance to see. You saw their downfall. And so what you're doing as you're contributing to the same problem as, as you are committing the same sin that they commit. That's like a whole new low. That's a new level of depravity. But now I, let me remind you, this is an encouraging sermon today. All right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let me find some encouragement. Hang on one second. All right, all right. Now, here's the encouragement. Listen. As he turned, I love this. As he goes on in verses 12 through 20, what he shows us is that even for Israel who is gone, even for them, it's not too late. So he actually, now remember, he's writing to Judah, but now he turns to Israel and he calls them to repentance. They're gone. Like these are literally probably individuals who are God-fearing, living in captivity, receiving this word, and they're hearing a message of hope, saying it's not too late and there are good things to come for you. There's this word return that he uses very poetically throughout this chapter. Jeremiah is a good writer, by the way. He uses the word return or turn. He uses it in eight different verses. Let me just show you a few of them. In verse 12, now, remember, he's talking to the northern kingdom in captivity, and he says, return. Return. And acknowledge your guilt in verse 13. The result is this, I will not look on you in anger. I'm not going to hold it against you. Just simply turn back. Look at verse 14. Return. Why? Why? Well, it's simple. Because God is their master. It's right. Return to him. And then I, I like this. In verse 15, he shows them that there is this blessing that is to come for those who return. I'm going to do something for you. This is a promise that God is giving those in captivity. He says, I'm going to give you shepherds after my own heart. I'm going to give you pastors, he's saying. After his own heart, meaning in the line of David. I'm going to give you pastors who are going to feed you with knowledge and understanding. Which, by the way, in the New Testament, when they use the word shepherd for those who lead the church, don't you think it would have brought to memory some of these promises? I mean, what a, what a privilege and, a, and also a, a, a certain kind of burden it is to be a shepherd of God's restored people. In verse 16, let me read verse 16 to you. He says, When you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they will no longer say the ark of the covenant 
uh, of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, it be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. What's he saying here? Well, this is what he's saying, I think, is there's coming a day when these external signs of, say, circumcision, the Ark of the Covenant, things that you've been hoping in, they're not even going to be present. They're not even going to be needed. There is going to be a change that comes to the people that is so tangible that the former representations of God's presence with the people are going to be forgotten. Verse 22, I love verse 22. He says, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. In, uh, uh, literally, in the Hebrew, it says this, turn, and I will heal your turnings. Jeremiah is a poet, I'm telling you. Like, your problem is that you're always turning away from God, and God is saying, turn to me, and I'm going to heal your turnings. I'm not going to let you continue to turn in the way that you have been. Oh man, does this speak to your life? I'm so tired of turning away from God. I'm so tired of my rebellions. I'm so tired of my backs. I don't know. God says, turn to me and I will take care of all of that. Like, turn finally to me and look at me face to face and I won't let you turn away again. Now, we might try, and we might slip, but he will keep our face looking at him. This is great hope. He's saying it's not too late for even the north. Those of you who are in captivity, those of you who really think you hit rock bottom, it's not too late. What is our call? Our call he invites repentance this is how he does it. He says, Joel, come, turn to me. Turn to me. Now, he doesn't just invite repentance, but he shows us, actually, what repentance is. So in verses 23 through 25, we have what I'm going to call a liturgy of repentance. It's sort of like, this is like the altar call. It's time, this is Jeremiah's poetic sermon. He's like, it's time to come forward. It's time to change. For those of you who want to turn, let me put some words in your mouth. This is like the sinner's prayer. Jeremiah essentially says, repeat after me. This is a model prayer. I, I want to do, it's a call and response. And I really believe that Jeremiah wrote this as a tool, a pastoral tool for the people to use where the minister would call it out and they would respond with this prayer of repentance. To get the feel for it, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up and I want to actually read this together in the same way that it might have been read in Israel. Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord, our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God. You may take a seat. That was Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22. 25, outlining for us what repentance looks like. Well, what does it look like? There are three stages of repentance here that are outlined for us. First, repentance is to see that your sin has deceived you. Repentance begins when we see that our sin has deceived you. Abraham Lincoln was talking with one of his uh, very stubborn critics. 
And Lincoln said, let me ask you a question. How many legs does a cow have? You guys answer for me. How many legs does a cow have? Four. Correct. Come on. Come on. You guys are playing games with me. It's going to mess it all up. Four. How many legs does a cow have? This isn't a trick question. Then Lincoln goes on and he says, all right, well, suppose we call the tail a leg. Now how many legs does a cow have? Ah, five? He said to his critic, see, that's where you're wrong. He still has four legs, even if we call the tail a leg. See, even if we call sin good, even if we call sin at times helpful, even if we call sin enjoyable, it's still sin. It doesn't matter what we call it. It doesn't matter what you call it. It's sin. And all sin is disastrous. Why do we call it good and pleasurable and helpful at times? It's because sin is deceiving. Sin deceives you, and when we begin to see this and we begin to recognize that, man, I'm, I'm messing up over and over and over again, I'm starting now to see that this sin is deceiving me. It's telling me that something is good, but it's leading me to hell. That is the ultimate kind of deception. Sin is deceiving. Look at the text in verse 23. He says, truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Now remember, in the, on the high hills, this is where they would have their, their uh, prostitution uh, cults, uh, fertility cults, where prostitutes would, would be there and you would actually have sex and they would turn into orgies on these mountains and they believed that it was going to bring about fertility in the land. Now, this is spiritual adultery and it's physical adultery. On one hand, it's physical. You know, on one hand, it's a, a cheap excuse to just delight in the, the things we want to delight in. We will find a hundred crazy ways to condone sin. You know what I'm saying? Like, we might not use this one, but there might be some other crazy thing we come up with. Hey, we can actually have this house, and if you come here, it'll increase fertility in the land if you just have sex with each other. It's also spiritual adultery, because only God can bring about fertility. Not some false god in a cult. But it's delusion, it's deceptive. It's deceptive. Man, and this applies to us, doesn't it? Think of Adam and Eve. Why did they fall into sin? Well, they fell into sin because they were, the Bible says, deceived. Man, how many times have you heard someone excuse their sin because they were deceived? Oh, well, I didn't know that it was wrong. I thought that it was good. The reason I keep doing this is because I keep thinking it's good, so it's not really my fault. I was just deceived. You know, I've actually heard people try to condone slave owners during the transatlantic slave trade and say, well, you know, they, they didn't quite know what they were doing. They were deceived. Yeah, they were. Because all sin <laughs> is deceptive. Just because you're deceived into sin doesn't mean you are any less responsible for it. Are you tracking with me? It's deceptive. Oh, I thought fill in the blank, would make me happy, would solve my problems. I thought it would help. I thought, I thought treating my spouse like a piece of crap would actually help my relationship with my spouse. <laughs> we laugh at that, but we all thought it at some point. It's because sin is deceptive. I thought, you know, delighting in sexual intimacy in various ways would actually bring me closer with people. 
that I'm not married to as opposed to creating more problems, but it's actually created more problems. It's deceptive. That's why. You know, there are dudes whose lives are completely falling down around them. I'm talking to them, and they have no clue why everything is terrible in their life. Why? It's because sin is deceptive, and they can't see it. They have sin all through them. In, in so many of their actions, so, many of their, 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 their world, so much of their worldview is framed by it. Uh, so, many, so many of the decisions they make is, is based on their sinful motives, and they don't know why things are falling apart all around them. Sin is deceptive. It goes for the jugular, and you don't even know it's there. Now, there was one who was never deceived by sin. Amen? And that one took on the punishment for our sin. Do you know the one who's never been deceived by sin? Oh, I want you to run to him now. Cling to him now. He is your hope. He is your rock. He is your stability. He is where you find clarity and life. Secondly, secondly, the second stage of repentance, if you would, here, is to see that sin has cost you. Sin is extremely costly. I think of my businessman friend. He lost a lot because of his sin. Kids that don't talk to him. Lost his spouse. Lost his two houses. Lost his four cars lost his six-digit job with the government, lost everything because of a sin struggle that was eating him alive. Yes, God does re, uh, uh, restore those years, and my, uh, by God's grace, he's doing some wonderful things now, but in the moment, it was costly. Don't just bet on uh, against God and delight in sin because God might repay you. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? That's the wrong way to think of it. No, sin is extremely costly. Look at verse 24. This is the point he makes. He says, from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all that our fathers labored. Their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. Listen, I think he's looking at the north. I think he's looking at, at, at the land, the wasteland now of Israel, now a, a province of Assyria, and he's thinking back to his maybe his grandfather's great-grandfather's great-grandfather, maybe back to the, to, to, to the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, King David, all of these people who worked so hard to build God's kingdom on earth in Israel, and it's gone. The sin that we have delighted in, our, thankful, our, our shameful thing has devoured everything that we worked for. How many jobs have been lost because of sin? Maybe laziness. Maybe stealing, theft, anger. Sin is costly, isn't it? It costs jobs. It costs families. It costs spouses. It costs children. You know, I, I want to be very careful here and, and, uh, and say this with compassion, that there are some fathers. My, my grandfather is one of them who, because of sin, didn't get a chance to see his kids grow up. Never could go to a baseball game because of sin. Now again, God can restore that by His grace. And if that describes you, praise God that God can restore it. It's not too late. You see what I'm saying? Another one where we have to have a lot of compassion is with the topic of abortion. Abortion is extremely costly. There are sisters in this church who have had abortions. And, and, uh, and one sister I'm thinking of right now, she, she would say that before the abortion, she thought it would, be, it would solve her problems. This was the answer. This is what I have to do. And man, it has been hard for her. 
there is a, a survivor's guilt that comes with our, for our sisters. And don't, don't count out the, the fathers in this who have had abortions. And those of you who have had an abortion, we weep with you. Know that there is forgiveness. Know that there, there is no guilt in Christ. Yet you could probably be the first to testify to the fact that it's costly. It's extremely costly. Don't think that we can just sin a little bit without paying the price that sin has for us. One author put it this way. He says, sin will take more from you than you are willing to give it. It will take you further than you're willing to go. It will keep you longer than you're willing to stay. And it will cost you more than you are willing to pay. That is sin. And repentance, friends, is when we recognize that. You see what I'm saying? I'm trying to paint for you what I think he's painting here. And that's a picture of what repentance looks like. Sin deceives us. Sin is costly. I'm recognizing that. I'm stepping away from it. And friends, it cost Jesus all that he had. It cost Jesus his entire life. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him, we who are sin might have righteousness. He took our sin on him and it cost everything. It costs more than we are ever able to pay. Not willing to pay, but able to pay. And he was not only able, but he was willing. He died a willing sacrifice sent by the love of the Father for us so that we might be made new. Thirdly, the third stage is repent, uh, of repentance is to see that sin has shamed you. To see that sin has shamed you. My son had trips all of the time. And when he trips, <laughs> he falls and skins his elbow on the sidewalk. And, and you know how kids are. They, won't, they hang on to that wound. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm like, let me look at it. Yeah. Like, let me try, I'm trying to pry his hand off. He's hanging on to it. Now, in, in a similar way, this is what we do with the shame of our sin. We want to hide it. What happens, going back to Adam and Eve, in the garden? What do they do after they sin? Yeah, they hide. Why? Because they have shame. And they don't, see the thing is, is they don't want to deal with their shame. They don't want to be ashamed. And so they hide. Does that make sense? Meaning they're running from their shame. They're not embracing the shame that sin has brought on them. But look at the text right here. Verse 24, or verse 25, he says, let us lie down in our shame. Let dishonor cover us. Meaning sin is a shameful thing. And if we just try to hide it, we just try to run from it. You see the problem? At what point was reconciliation started in the garden? It was when Adam and Eve stood before God in their shame. It was only then that God could begin to remake them and renew them. And so what I believe he's saying here is just simply deal with it. Don't hide from what sin has brought on you. Don't hide from this kind of shame. You know, there are consequences that you have to face. Sometimes it is embarrassment. Sometimes you do lose your job. Sometimes marriages are lost because of sin. Like, you've got to deal with the consequences of sin and not hide your entire life just to simply avoid the shame that sin brings. So this is crazy, I get it, but part of repentance is to say, God, let the shame cover me. Meaning, let me, let me deal with the reality of this sin. But let me encourage you again, because remember what I said earlier, that this is an encouraging sermon. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4, the prophet says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. 
This is the irony of the gospel. It's only when we turn to God in our shame and we say, let that dishonor cover us and we confess it to a brother or a sister in a small group and we say something. I had a friend call me this last week. He's, he's been in some sin and his, his wife has found out and he called me up and he's like, I've got to confess this to somebody else and he told me. As soon as we uncover it, healing begins. As soon as we turn to God, God takes our shame from us. We see that our shame was placed on Him on the cross, and He bore our shame. And there is no shame left for us to live in. So don't live in shame. Amen? Now, let me just close with this. The, it's, it's very possible that this liturgy was read in Israel with pretense, which we have seen earlier in this passage, meaning it was a false confession, meaning they were relying on their words as opposed to a change of their heart, which is why I think we have the next four verses in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, you've got to break up your hard, stony, fallow ground. You, you can't plant a garden on concrete. You need to get a bulldozer in there and start breaking this stuff up. And then he goes on and he says something that is extremely interesting. In verse 4, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. They think to themselves, okay, we can do that. Hold up, let me finish. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Don't you realize that God requires them something here that they can't do? Let me just briefly explain this to you. Circumcision is this external sign that you are marked for God's people and for God's service. And when he says hard here, I don't think he's referring literally to the organ. I don't even think he's just referring to the feelings that we have or our desires. I think he's referring to our entire inner self. And he's saying what you need to do is remove the foreskin of your entire inner self. You need to mark the entire inner being of who you are. Your entire self needs to be transformed and changed and marked for God's service and for his people. Now, that's not something human hands can do. You see the problem there. Human hands can perform an external circumcision, but human hands cannot perform an internal circumcision. The only way that we can have an internal circumcision of our heart, the only way that we can be changed on the inside is if God's Holy Spirit does it for us. We need God's hand in this surgery. Now, I, uh, Jeremiah actually leaves you hanging here. But I told you this was going to be an encouraging sermon, right? Did I tell you that? And so I don't want to leave you hanging. Because we have to get all the way to chapter 24 before Jeremiah gives us some hope. <laughs> That's going to be like a lot of weeks. Um, so let me just, this is, you know, my kids like to give away the next scene when we're watching a movie. This is like a spoiler alert. If you want to wait, you can leave now, go in peace, see you later, sayonara. Um, but if you want to be encouraged before you leave, Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7, brings some resolve to this question. How do we change our heart? And he says this, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with all their heart. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 7. How is it going to happen? Answer, it's going to happen because God is going to do this work himself. And this follows all the way through to the New Testament when Paul in Romans chapter 2 verse 29 says a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. By, not man, not what we can do, 
not the reconciliation that we can bring, but by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who throws off our old nature and who makes us new, who takes our old corruption and does away with it and restores something new in us, who picks us up and turns us around and sets our feet on solid ground, who renews our heart, renews our attitude, renews our mind, who changes us from the inside out. I need a new heart. I can't deal with a heart that I can come up with. I can't bring about the change inside of me that I need to, be, to, to have. I need a new heart. The psalmist says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Well, I don't know about you, but create means that something didn't exist. Meaning bring about something that doesn't already exist. Something I wasn't born with, but something I need. And what is that? It's a new heart. It's it's a whole new inner being that the Holy Spirit does for us. Maria got her years back. And she got her love back. My neighbor sits in church a couple times every week. Every time they have any kind of Bible study, he is there devouring God's Word. The businessman that I told you about, he's wildly successful, not with money, but with seeing hundreds and hundreds of addicts' lives changed. My dad changed the trajectory of his own family history. How is all of this possible? It's not because we can give glory to any one of these people. It's because the Holy Spirit did something in their life. And the Holy Spirit changed them made in them a a, a whole new creation. It's not too late. Is it? Is it too late? It's not too late. Reconciliation is not impossible. Reconciliation is possible because God has given us all that we need out of our Father's love through His Son by the power of the Holy Spirit who fills us and who works within us. Let's be marked for His service. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would continue to convert lost souls in this church, that You might wake us up that more and more people will come to a saving repentance. And I pray, God, for those of us who have the Holy Spirit living within us, for those who are marked for your service, I pray that we will not think of repentance as a one-time deal, something we do in order to get the ticket of salvation, but that we would see that repentance really is a lifelong, ongoing act. As long as we are in our flesh and struggling with sin, Help us to know that we must live a life of repentance. For your glory, it's in his name we pray. Amen.